Hello and welcome to the Westminster Standard Podcast. This is uh, Ryan Beasy. Thanks for joining. Uh, today I am joined by an all-star panel of elders in the PCA as we talk about the things that have happened since General Assembly as well as look forward to uh, the new year. I'm joined by uh, Teaching Elder Zach Groff from Antioch Presbyterian Church, the oldest church plant in the PCA, uh, Teaching Elder George Grant of Nashville Presbytery, Job DeLumba, of Northwest Georgia Presbytery, ruling elder Matt Lee, also of Northwest Georgia Presbytery, Stephen O'Neill, a teaching elder uh, from New Jersey Presbytery, and our illustrious uh, moderator, the Reverend Teaching Elder Fred Greco. Thank you all for coming on the show. Our delight. Glad to be here. Yep. Well, uh, Mr. Moderator, I thought we would uh, start with you. How are things in the PCA? Uh, Ryan, I think things in the PCA are wonderful. Um, I guess somebody would expect maybe that I would say, you're asking if there's problems in the PCA? Forget about it. There's nothing. Forget about it. Um, but uh, I am, you know, this is a statement that I've made and others have made as well. I'm very bullish on the state of the PCA. Um, I think we have come out of covid uh, I think we've come out of COVID stronger than ever because we in the PCA were much more committed to gathered worship than a lot of other um, areas of the visible church. Uh, I think it was a difficult time for our sessions and our pastors, but I think we're past. I think we're starting to see again that slow growth in the denomination that we've seen over the last few decades. There was a dip, you know, in COVID and we weren't sure what was going to happen with the finances? What was going to happen with membership? Is, you know, are we going to slowly dwindle? And I think um, the Lord has preserved us and we are moving ahead uh, in, in a very good way. I am very, very pleased by the unity in the PCA. Now, there's not a uniformity. Um, there still are folks that um, disagree a lot. I'm very familiar with this. Um, I have some of my closest friends in the PCA vote opposite of me on the SJC every single time. But, uh, but we enjoy each other's company. We, we help each other out. We give advice. Uh, we hang out. And, and there's, there's a, a brotherliness there. And I had the, the great blessing that the Lord allowed me to moderate perhaps the most united General Assembly we've had in 25 years. Amen. I mean, there were a couple of issues that the assembly was divided on. One, relatively closely, I think our closest vote was probably a 60-40 vote um, on the minority report with respect to um, who could be a witness in a case. But that's not nearly as close as other issues have been. And my um, observation, being able to do this as the moderator, you know, one of the the great benefits of being a moderator or a chairman is you don't have to think about what arguments you're going to make. You don't have to analyze the arguments that other people are making. My principle when moderating a meeting is I, I'm a traffic cop. I don't inject myself at all. I don't give any impression of how I would vote. I trust the men who are going to vote the way I would vote to speak on the floor. They don't need me. There's other capable men. So I was just able to observe. And I didn't really observe any rancor I didn't uh, observe um, heightened temperatures or conflict, even when there were actual 
principled disagreements. And I think it's okay for us to have principled disagreements. I thought we disagreed well. That's healthy for the church. It wasn't a false unity, everybody just going along to get along. That very much pleased me. Um, I think one of the best signs of the health in the PCA is, I think in a very good way, we have put the tension in the main on sexuality issues behind us. Um, I can't tell you how pleased I have been with the study committee report on sexuality in the PCA. Like many ministers, I taught a special Sunday school class, 13 weeks going through the statements, uh, introducing my congregation. And it was meant as an adult class, but I had senior high and junior high kids in that class. Their parents wanted them to hear about this. I think it was very definitive. It was very well done. It handled issues that we've always had a position on, but haven't really studied well. We know more about concupiscence now than we ever have. In a, and I mean that in a very good way. We understand it now. And even the people in our church who can't say concupiscence understand the principle. They understand that Jesus was tempted in a different way that we're tempted because Jesus didn't have a sin nature. They understand that because we're fallen sinners, when we're tempted and we're drawn to, to sin, even when we don't actually sin, that is still sin, and we need to repent of it. And I think that's just been wonderful. Um, there was not blood on the floor everywhere as people thought if we would try to go through these theological issues. You know, I have to sort of, I'm a veteran of the SJC, been on the SJC now, I think 15 years. And whenever I hear fearful calls of um, uh, charges and witch hunts, I say, give me two citations of theological heresy, controversy, and charges in the PCA in the last 20 years. And you pretty much can't, because we don't do that. So there has not been division in that sense. And at this last assembly, uh, we passed, I think, what I think will be the final amendment, at least for now, that's needed on that issue for our Book of Church order. It was written by a good friend of mine, uh, Dr. David Strain, at First Pres Jackson, and um, the vote was overwhelming in uh, the assembly. And I've been talking to people in various presbyteries. They've been asking me about the amendments. And I've basically said, you don't need to worry about it because if your presbytery votes against it, it's still going to pass. It's gonna, we're going to have this approved by like January. I will say to you, this is humorous. I don't know if anyone else has heard this. The biggest complaint I heard about, pres about general assembly and that sexuality amendment was that our host went to the microphone too quickly and called the question because there were men who wanted to speak in favor of the amendment. Not because they wanted to fight about it, but because they wanted to stand up and say, we think this is good. We think this will help. Let's go forward. Now, I'm not casting aspersions because there are, I guess what I would say, um, Pastor Beasy, is that you reserve your call in the question for those dire times when I'm not the moderator and it's 1235 in the morning and we're trying to get out of there on Thursday night. Then you call a question all you want, baby. <laughs> um, but uh, as my good friend John White told me, I, I, right now at least, I hold the record for getting us out at 330 on Thursday. Thank so you. until somebody else, you know, 
has the the great confluence of a great assembly and and men thinking alike and not a lot of controversy to beat my record. Um, I, I think it was just that was a great instance of where the PCA is. And I have been saying for years that the higher attendance at the General Assembly has been indicative of where the PCA is as a denomination. I don't think this is a matter of this party shows up more than that party or this party's more organized than that party. If you do the math, if everyone who is capable of going as a commissioner to the General Assembly under BCO 14 went, we would have something like 12,000 commissioners. <laughs> if, you, if every teaching elder could go and every church set their maximum ruling elders, it would be off the charts. And so when we have 600 commissioners or 700 commissioners, it's going to be self-selective. And so the more commissioners you get, the more indicative of all of the various kinds of PCA churches, city churches, rural churches, southern churches, northern churches, western churches. And so I think not only am I pleased by the last few assemblies, I'm pleased that it's indicative of where we are as a denomination. Now, I realize, brothers, we're Presbyterian, so we're always going to come up with something to fight about. That's just going to happen, right? And, and, and I think that's okay. We're always refining each other. We're trying to have iron sharpen iron. But the fact that we are going to be dealing with issues that are not central to the faith, you know, for as much as the PCA fights, people think, oh, woe is us. You know, we're just like all of the other churches that have difficulty in, in, the, in America. No, we're not. We're not ever fighting about whether Jesus is God. We're not ever fighting about whether the Bible is the word of God. We're not ever fighting about covenant theology. We're not ever fighting about, you know, the main things of the faith, the resurrection. Um, you know, we're sharpening on the edges. And actually, I don't know if you're going to get into this later. I think the next big challenge for the PCA is going to be applying properly within our proper framework of a judicial system, the DASA report, and dealing properly with instances and allegations of various types of abuse while protecting the rights of the accused. Both of those principles are very important. We can't jettison victims. We can't jettison, you, you, know, you don't have to prove yourself innocent. And so the thing that's encouraging about that is, is that we're going to have some level of discussion conflict over a matter of which fundamentally we're all agreed upon. We all want biblical justice. We all want uh, the best treatment for members of our churches. We all want men to have um, their fair say in court. It's just, what does it look like? We're not actually on opposite sides of that issue. That's going to be the next couple of years. And I think that's okay um, because we've got fundamental agreement in the background. Um, so I am, for all of those reasons, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very uh, bullish on the PCA, excited about the PCA. I have to say for me, and I hope for you all as well, that trickles down into my local church. I'm so glad we're out of COVID. We now are starting to see pre-COVID numbers in worship and in Sunday school as where things are normalizing. Um, our ministries are going, you know, full bore. Uh, people are volunteering. Um, and on the other side of all of those challenges, people in my congregation realize how important the church is in their life. And so, um, you know, 
it'll be it'll be much much better when Jesus comes back. <laughs> but um, the reports of the demise of the PCA are well exaggerated. Um, Indeed, I am. I'm very pleased to be a PCA minister. Amen. Well said. Any uh, any comments from our our panel or questions? Well, first of all, Fred, you and I haven't had a chance to talk since. Uh, General Assembly, but uh, it was far and away the best run, the most um, well-ordered in terms of debate and procedure in all of the years that I have been going. So I just want to say, as so many have already said, thank you. And uh, ain't nobody breaking your record anytime soon. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. And I will tell you, if you couldn't tell, I'll, I'll spill the beans. I had the time of my life up there. <laughs> oh, it was and evident. So it was I, evident. Was, I was enjoying myself so much, it caught up with me. And I'm never going to live down Tanker Bob getting me on the floor of the assembly. Now, I want to say for the record, if you've listened to George Sayers' podcast, when the first time that issue came up, I ruled correctly. Mm-hmm. And then I was distracted and started to have some fun. And Bob asked me again, and then I was wrong. And then, of course, there was the state statement that will live forever. I'm sorry. I am wrong. You are right. To which Bob responded. I mean, I just enjoyed that so much. I love serving the church. And I appreciate your kind words, George. Uh, Brothers, I have sitting next to me... um, a future communicant member of the PCA, I hope. My uh, one of my one of my sons is sitting here, kind of watching us, enjoying the banter. And um, as we reflect on the past fifty years of the PCA and the present, where we are right now, I can't help but thinking about the future and the kind of church that, um, um, in God's grace, we're leaving and preparing for our children uh, to have uh, as they grow up. And uh, I, I'm wondering, you know, what what around the corner you the, the sexuality stuff is by and large behind us, praise God. Um, but what around the corner um, seems to be rumbling in the distance? What, what are, what are going to be the next things that we're going to deal with as a church and hopefully uh, come out stronger with more refined uh, views and positions and applications of, of the gospel and of God's word? Uh, Fred, I don't, while you're with us, can you speak to uh, maybe what you think are the next kind of big things that we're going to have to deal with as a denomination. So let me start with a big caveat. We don't know what we're going to face, because if you had told me 10 years ago that we would have to seriously discuss whether a man could put on a dress and declare that he is a woman and you would have to affirm him, I would have said you're crazy. Okay? Gay activists would have said you're crazy. No one saw that coming. So who knows? But I think what we're going to be seeing is uh, we're always going to see attacks on the word of God as authoritative. And I don't know exactly what angle that will come from, but the enemy hates the word of God. So I see attempts to maybe acculturate the word of God or to deny certain portions of the word of God. Perhaps there'll be some scientific method to have certain books be declared as, you know, in it. But there's going to be an attack on the word of God that we're going to have to stand on. And the good news is, is that we're familiar with that ground and we can do that. Um, so I think that's possible. I think it may become more and more difficult to do evangelism and to speak boldly. Um, 
I'm glad I live in the United States of America. I've been involved in missions efforts in East Asia and in Africa, and they don't have the same liberties that we do. They don't have the same legal protections we do, not even our brethren in the PCA in Canada. They don't have the First Amendment. And I think there may be attempts made to stop us from evangelizing other faiths like Muslims and Jews and others. I think there may be attempts to have a stop speaking in public forums on things like abortion or sexuality. So I think we're going to have to come up with, we may have to come up with a good theology of persecution. Um, you know, I don't think around the corner, I'm going to be thrown in jail from something I said in the pulpit. But we're already today, a member of my church could lose his job for failing to attend LGBTQ affirming um training. So I think we're, the church is going to have to think through that, Zach. Um, because we live in America, because we take it for granted, I don't know that we've really, we tend to think we're persecuted if our boss won't let us have an extra half an hour for lunch to have a Bible study, right? So I think that's that's going to be, you know, significant uh, as well. Um, I think especially in our culture, there's always going to be a shift back and forth about the role of women in the church. Um and so, you know, there's a there's a shift between those who in the PCA want to be much more aggressive with having women involved in the church. And then there's some in the PCA, a lot outside the PCA, the you know, in in uh, certain circles um, uh, led by certain ministers who live in, in certain states that have a city that is the same name as a Russian city um, that want women to do nothing to not be involved in any way, in anything, to be not seen. Um, and I don't think that's where the PC is either. Is either. I don't think that's where any of us are. I think we're glad for women involved in our mercy ministries, women involved teaching children, women involved. I mean, I think there's whole, we could talk all day about that. I think those parameters are not bright lines yet. So I think there's still going to be some back and forth on that. And again, I think that's okay and healthy as long as we're honest and we're trying to deal with it from a scriptural perspective. Zach, I think there are two other areas that could uh, be on the forefront very quickly. One is marriage licenses. Uh, because of the changes in federal um, approaches to the application of Obergefell, uh, states are beginning to negate their uh, language in marriage licenses to the point that they almost become unsignable. Uh, so marriage licenses it could very well become a huge issue for our churches, which will then bubble up into General Assembly. Mm -hmm. um, and then secondly, tax status. I think uh, what Fred has articulated about um, what we can say and do outside of the four walls of the church uh, may very well affect how the IRS looks at 501c3s. Uh, it's already under scrutiny in a whole host of different areas. And uh, that, too, could wind up being, among Machen's warring children, uh, another one of yeah. our frontline battles. That's a good point, George. That's, that's a good point. They're a little bit technical, but they're very practical. They have very practical effects. Yes. Fred, I thought that comment about persecution was very interesting, especially in light of uh, an earlier comment that you made about 
uh, coming out of COVID and seeing people come out and, and participate in the ministry uh, and things like that once more. Uh, because I think coming out of COVID or actually, actually during COVID, one of the things that so many of our churches developed was some sort of live streaming ministry. And now as part of that, I think a lot of churches lean very, very heavily on uh, big digital corporations like Facebook or Google or Zoom. And so in thinking about uh, persecution, uh, that persecution in the past may have had to come by a visitor sitting in the pews, but now... Right. All of that data is digital, uh, digitized and can be quantified much more easily, especially with the rise of machine learning and artificial intelligence. So I think that's a, a really important thought for us to think about. Um, I also think another pressing issue that the PCA is facing is around worship. Um, I think this uh, issue has kind of developed uh, over many years with the number of exceptions that have been granted around the second and the fourth commandments. Um, and I think... Um, you know, just recent conversations about uh, making parts of our DPW uh, director for public worship constitutional have kind of uh, initiated this conversation as to what exactly worship should look like and how much uh, unity or if, if you're going to talk about it critically uniformity uh, around worship there should be in the PCA. Yes, and we'll and we'll talk about uh, what is it overture two overture three. Um, in a, in a few minutes. Um, if we could transition, how do you think uh, the, the PCA has changed? Uh, I know uh, teaching on our, our, uh, our clerk, teaching on our chapel, uh, wrote in 2015 a, a state of the PCA uh, in which he uh, articulated you know, his perceptions of it. He wasn't our state of clerk at the time, but I think that you know, he really um, had a special insight into how the church was doing. Um, he said, you know, my friend, you go to a progressive uh, church, uh, which would represent the majority of younger pastors and the churches that are growing. Um, you know, is that is that still the case? Has COVID been harder on the progressive churches than on what you know he calls the, the traditionalist uh, churches? He identifies those three groups, which I, I think, you know, people don't like the labels, but I think that it's at least uh, pretty accurate, even if you would prefer a different label, the progressives— the neutrals, and um, the traditionalists, which, you know, I'm certainly uh, not wanting to be called a traditionalist, but there we go. Um, so how, how do we think things have, have changed? He said many younger pastors would prefer to be in the EPC or the new Anglican denominations. However, the squishiness of doctrine in those circles, the low likelihood of local churches changing affiliations, and of course, divergent views on the role of women are concerns that combine to keep most of the PCA from jumping ship. Um, how, how has the PCA changed since that uh, was at the Houston Assembly, which also was one of our shortest assemblies? That's right. Uh, Brian was, I think, the moderator of that assembly, right? Yeah, he was. I think that's, he was. I think that's right. Um, I think that the, the PCA has changed some from our perception of her 20 years ago. Uh, one of the things that, that I am very excited about is the resource that the Lord has given to us in our younger ministers um, and younger elders. Um, I'm kind of the exception to the rule. Um, I'm uh, a ruling elder who traded in his R for a T. So I've done both. So could you be um, that, moderator again next year? Twice. So I'm I'm living proof that the PCA is a three-office denomination. Um, but... Um, I think, uh, we have a lot of good young men. I was ordained at 27. There's a lot of good young men, um, in, 
in the ministry and uh, being trained as ruling elders. And that's really the health and vitality long term uh, of of the uh, the denomination. Um, I think one of the things that's changed, maybe not for the better, that needs some work is there's a whole generation of leaders my age that have not done as good of a job mentoring and training younger men as the fathers in in the church did. Um, you know, the Jim Bairds of the world, um, the Harry Readers of the world, the Tim Kellers of the world. You know, they 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 took younger men under their wing and, and not only taught them about ministry, but how to be churchmen. And so we need to do more of that. Uh, humbly, I try to do as much of that as I can um, to get young guys around and, and try to transmit what I've learned sometimes by the school of hard knocks. So I think that's a real challenge for the PCA where we're different from the last 20 or 25 years. Yeah, I'm seeing um, so many of our young guys taking the lead in uh, pressing us toward real and substantive covenantal reform. Uh, yes. All of the pastors in our church, all of the guys that I serve with, every single one of them is more than 30 years younger than me. Uh, and that's, that's very intentional on the part of our session and very intentional on my part. Um, I think you're right, Fred. We've got to lay uh, firm foundations. And over the last 20 years or so, we've just not done a great job at that. But in God's grace, he's brought us uh, yes. this, this whole crop of really faithful young men who I'm very excited to see them step forward and lead. Yes, I agree. I also don't like those labels in Brian's statement. I think part of that's been it's changed in about a decade. Um, I don't talk about um, conservatives or traditionalists anymore. You know, in the political arena, what does it mean to say somebody's conservative? You know, you cannot tell me that principally Donald Trump is a Burkean. You just can't. Right. Okay. And yet he is right now the leading polar in the, quote, conservative party, the Republican Party. So that word doesn't mean, you know, what it used to mean. Um, and so, you know, I had the, the, the blessing to know Russell Kirk. Um, he was involved with the debating society I was in. It was a very principled man. And so, you know, we need principled men. And I think we do have principled men in the, in the, in the PCA. Amen. And I think confessional is probably a good term. And I don't mean that in the sense that people who wouldn't consider themselves on that wing of the PCA don't believe in the confession and don't subscribe to the confession. I think they do. I think there may be some that are more focused on the confession, especially, you know, if you think about it, this is a display of our unity. Matt mentioned, you know, issues around the second and the fourth commandments. Um, you know, that is there, but there's not, there's not widespread debate in the PCA about, you know, Westminster chapter three or chapter eight or chapter 14. There are certain things that are hot buttons confessionally. Um, and so I think there's some division there. I don't know whether the other wing, if you will, would like to be called progressives or not, I'm open to hearing, you know, mm -hmm. another phrase. Liberal is certainly not an appropriate phase, a phrase. But you know, because, the, the hot button issues in our day are actually, it, when it comes to the confession, are actually cultural. 
they're, they're not really wrestling with the confession as much as they are accommodating themselves to the culture. And so and there's an application of our principles in, in a cultural context right, as well. Right. So I, I do think that there are, you know, that, I mean, if there's one label that I, I think very accurate, although it's not very descriptive, it's the neutrals. <laughs> I think there is a huge percentage of the PCA, and I, I think this is fine, that is satisfied with hunkering down, doing local ministry, doing pastoral counseling, conducting vacation Bible schools, doing Bible studies, writing church newsletters. And I think that's the vast bulk of the PCA. Yeah. And um, they're not even really concerned about some of the things that winds us all up on the blog sphere. Um, and so I think that's okay. Um, again, that doesn't mean that these issues aren't worth fighting about. I, I mean, I think they are, but I think the way we conduct uh, our um, ourselves it speaks to how the church is going to deal with these controversial issues. One of the things that I have tried to cultivate, you all can tell me whether I'm horrible at it or not. I have tried over my 25 plus years of service in the PCA to always be seen as fair. If someone comes to me from a church that is on the far other side of where people know my positions are and needs help, I'm going to give them help. I'm going to give them advice. I'm going to help them pastorally, ecclesiastically, help them draft language for something they want to bring to the General Assembly. Doesn't mean I'm for it, but I'm for them and for them engaging in the process. And I, that's another thing that I think a lot of our new younger guys are doing. They're engaging in the process. They're not just throwing rocks. They're serving on committees. They're talking with guys, not just in committee meetings, but at dinners afterwards. And, you know, and I think that's all very healthy. Um, we have differing perspectives. I don't know that we have as much camps as we did even back in 15. I think there's been a huge beneficiary of one of the most um, organized organizations going by the wayside in the PCA. Uh, and I think that's helped. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, they're always going to be the GRNs of the world. You know, now there's the AMRs of the world. There's always going to be that. And, you know, I was listening to a podcast uh, this morning, the Polity Matters guys who really, they, that's my love language. Um, and Jared Nelson, who is a dear friend and just, you know, the most gentle giant you will ever meet in your life. Like he should be an offensive lineman and he's just so gentle. And he was interviewing Howie Donahoe and, and how he said, which I agree with him. I'm all for people actively advocating for their views. There's no reason why people shouldn't be able to actively advocate, you know, within the realms of decorum, we shouldn't mm -hmm. be milk toast and pretend there's nothing worth talking about. So we have wings, so to speak, but I think uh, I think in the main, there's not secret camps, organized camps like there might have been, you know, in various ways. That was one of the signs of the disease in the PCUS. Hmm. I mean, the confessionalists were part of the secret conspiracies and a camp. They had to be because if they were public, they would have been disciplined for saying the Bible is the word of God. Right. Um, and so we're not there anymore. Uh, I, that's another reason why I think we're very healthy. Yeah, kind of getting into um, the news, you know, that, that uh, AMR group, uh, the Alliance for Mission and Renewal, uh, I think they debuted back in uh, June, and they put out some content. Um, 
sort of uh, moving from a, a more new school perspective, maybe, I want to play a clip from uh, one, of, one of their podcasts uh, that I thought was possibly the best uh, two minutes in podcasting for, for at least uh, um, the first uh, 10 months of the year. I agree that mission and message are equally ultimate things. Um, what's the use of having clarity on the message if you don't share it with anyone? Right. What's the use of being all about reaching the world if you've lost the message that will yeah, save the world? That's right. right. So these are equally ultimate, must be held together. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't think it's right to 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 sort of polarize the denomination, say these are the message guys and those are the mission guys. Yeah. I think sometimes that has to do more with the particular point under discussion than it does with two camps. My, my own view is that uh, our theological standards, the Westminster standards, express the central stream of what it means to be a Presbyterian Christian. They're not, they're not on the right or the left. The Westminster Standards is, in my judgment, biblical Christianity most fully expressed. And to really grasp that ought to lead us to deep convictions wedded to an irenic spirit, uh, a desire to stand together with all those who share like precious faith with us without wavering on our commitments. And I do think that part of the broader uh, landscape of discussion in our culture right now has uh, bled into the church so that so that there can be a real polarization, um, a lack of listening, a great deal of heat, not always a great deal of light. Now, I do think that there are, in a number of places, substantive differences of opinion, both about the message and about the mission. No question. How, how in terms of methodology and right, yeah, 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 no question. What what needs to be emphasized, um, and how best to get the word out. Yeah, and and those are real differences. But often we're talking past each other, fighting about what we assume each other is saying, rather than having genuine discussion about those real differences. We have mm. so much that we share, um, but you wouldn't always know it, especially if you tune into the debates at General Assembly. I mean, just great comments there from David Strain on our on our standards, on our um, on the spirit we need to have. Any thoughts on on that? Um, I mean, just a superb podcast uh, episode from the AMR guys. Any any thoughts on what uh, David Strain brought to the table there? David was outstanding, but um, it was actually three Davids uh, <laughs> on the on the podcast. David Richter uh, from here in the Nashville Presbytery, and then. David Cassidy, who was in the National Press Theory, is now in South Florida, uh, along with David Strain. Uh, I thought all three made great contributions. And, you know, talking about uh, healing the divide between the tribes, essentially saying exactly what you've been saying, Fred, uh, coming together. I, you know, th there were things that um, in the podcast I disagreed with, but I loved the tone. I loved the 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 concord and the conversation. And I think it, it points to uh, the place of, of real health in uh, the PCA that we can have uh, guys as divergent on some views as that uh, engaging so constructively. Yes. Mm -hmm. I think that Strain's, uh, Pastor Strain's point that of what he desires, how he sees Westminster as uh, the standards and this being biblical Christianity, 
um, that he he seems to uh, be saying what a lot of people. I think some of the changes in the direction of the PCA and the positive reflect that because many are wanting to. They believe the same way, and they believe that this this uh, as Scott Clark would say theology, piety, and practice is 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 the the way in which God would have us to live and operate. And they want to see that across the PCA. And I think it's, uh, I think it's one of the reasons that the trajectory has gone in a positive direction is that it's beyond just a minor point of theology and agreement. You know, you come in, you could come into the PCA maybe for one reason or two, but it's wanting the whole thing. And a lot of people want to be and are excited and joyful about being Presbyterian. And they want to see it practice across the board from the lowest level to the highest in every part. And I think yeah. that his what he is saying is encapsulating a lot of the growing trends amongst the younger, particularly. I don't know if I'm younger, I'm 40, but <laughs> uh, whatever I am, and I, I feel that desire because I've only been in the PCA a few years. So in that new breed, so to say, of time, that's that's what I sense in a lot of people I talk to and people coming into the churches the congregants, they want to be uh, intensely and robustly Presbyterian and are happy about it and want to see it take root throughout. So true. Yes, yes. Well, let's uh, let's uh, talk about the items before the uh, the presbyteries. Uh, we've got three, only three of them this year. I think was it last year they were eight or nine. Um, our uh, our unofficial official statistician, ruling elder Matthew Lee, has has come up with uh, some scatter plots uh, to show, you know, just how how these are, are are flying through the presbyteries. I think there's only been one presbytery uh, that's voted against item one. Let me pull up the the. You, the you know, Ryan, here. I thought that the course on advanced statistics I took in seminary would be completely useless to my ministry, <laughs> but you are proving me wrong. This. I understand all of this because of the three credit classic Greenville seminary on statistics. Thank you, <laughs> Dr. Piper and Ryan BC. And yeah, uh, I, I, did, uh, did Morton Smith teach that, uh, that, that class on statistics there? <laughs> Maybe. I don't remember. <laughs> uh, but this is item, uh, what is this? Item two on sexuality. There's been one presbytery that's voted uh, against it. Um, item Item one on titles, I think there are three presbyteries who have uh, voted against it. And then item uh, four on, uh, item three, I can't even count today, on confessions, I think, again, only one presbytery has voted against it. Uh, when ruling out a league gets back, uh, we'll, we'll talk about what these what these dots mean. But what, uh, what do you all think it means that these are just flying through? Is this a sign that we actually are having some unity, or uh, is there... Uh, is is the language going to come back and, and trouble us in the future? I think it is, Ryan, a sign of unity. I mean, all of these items passed very handily in the assembly. Some of them weren't even debated, uh, particularly. They all passed very handily in the Overtures Committee. Now, is there going to be some confusion about the language? Of course. Yeah. I mean, I see this all the time as a commissioner on the SJC. Um, you know, we get a lot of cases and there are certain things that are just completely obvious to me and people strain over it and have difficulty. I just saw on Facebook today under 
9-2 or 9-3, where it indicates the treasurer. Someone looked at the language and said, well, the treasurer has to be a deacon. No, the treasurer doesn't. Treasurer doesn't even need to be an officer. Here's a newsflash. The treasurer doesn't even need to be a man because of the language. But there are people who read that language and say, no, of course, it means that it's in the chapter on deacons. It needs to be a deacon. And so that's a clearer example of controversy. So especially, I think the title um, issue could become controversial. You know, is it if a church has a deaconess, is that using a title like pastor or minister or elder or deacon? Is it the same? I mean, I think we're going to have to work through some of these things. That's what happens with every law. It gets worked out, you know, in practice. But I think in the main, the PCA is not really debating this. It agrees on this. The only objection might have been that I've heard to some of these things are we don't need them in the book because we already agree on them. Right, right. And I think that's why you're seeing, you know, Matt can, all the math in my house is done by my wife, who's a math teacher. I don't do any math. Uh, I gave it up. But um, I think what you're seeing here is not just presbyteries passing them, but by votes of like 31 to 1 and right. 40 to 2. I mean, they're not even close. Right. Um, I'm anticipating when our presbytery takes it up in January, all of those items are going to take like five minutes. I'm not even sure there's going to be debate. Yeah. So um, I think that's good. I, I think these things are just sailing through. In the Nashville Presbytery, where things like this uh, have historically taken days, hmm. uh, we dispensed with uh, each of the overtures uh, in, I would say, less than 12 minutes. Wow. Yeah, I yeah. think last year in Tennessee Valley Presbytery, it took two or three hours, uh, and, and we had this year maybe one speech for each item. And yeah. So, Matt, would you uh, – I'm sorry, Dr. Lee, would you explain your uh, the, these charts to us? Yeah, don't hold it against me. All right, so uh, <laughs> to use technical language here, right, when the dots are really high above the red line – People like these overtures that are being up for votes this year uh, relative to, I chose the the one that was the most, uh, uh, the closest vote, overture 15. And so you see a lot of these dots that are above the red line, which means they're doing a lot better than overture 15 was last year. And the green dots in particular mean that an, uh, a particular presbytery would have voted against that uh, overture 15 last year, but then maybe flipped and voted in favor of Overture 23. Uh, I think that's item one this year. Uh, so I think, as has already been said, uh, it's not just that these uh, are passing, they're passing by a wide margin and they're passing in a lot of our presbyteries. So um, I, I did the math uh, for the remaining 47 presbyteries um, to vote in such a way as to um, have these actually fail. Uh, the the two-thirds supermajority needed in the presbyteries, uh, the sample would have to be significantly different, uh, a teeny tiny p-value if that means anything to anyone. So I think we've already seen uh, that there's a very high probability that all three of these are going to pass, and we may even receive official news of it, uh, like Fred supposed, uh, come come January or February. Great. Um, 
What what is this uh, this uh, Sankey plot? Yeah, I, so I this don't is, know uh, what a Sankey plot is one of my favorite types of kind of descriptive uh, visualizations. But you can see from three different um, time points how the vote has shifted on a particular issue. So in this one, uh, this the sexuality issue in particular, right? So you go back uh, two years to twenty one twenty two when we were voting on was it uh, twenty three and thirty seven back then? Yep. Um, yep. And so just 58.5% of Presbyterians passed both of those. You see 4.9% passed uh, one, but not both of them. Uh, and then this this would be just in reference to the Presbyterians who have voted on the uh, uh, item one this year. So the, the middle column there is not actually reflective of the, the final tally, uh, but of the Presbyterians that have voted, 70.7% .7 of them voted in favor of uh, Overture 15 last year. Uh, I think. And then uh, you can see that that green margin opens up wider and wider. It's up to 97.6 this year. So it is worth pointing out uh, that the Presbyterians that have voted so far this year would have passed the two-thirds supermajority uh, margin. But nonetheless, even though uh, the ones that were more likely to vote against it uh, have yet to vote this year, they would have to do so by a super wide margin in order for uh, item one not to pass and to be uh, taken up at uh, General Assembly next next summer. And Ryan, if I could give a narrative that would go along with Matt's statistics, I think part of the result of this is not that massive numbers of presbyteries have changed their views. I think it's that through the process of writing legislation, we have been able to do a better job mm. of threading the needle because we've tried it's trial and error. Yeah. You 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 try something, it doesn't pass. You come back again. And, and so the language, I would think some presbyteries may have changed. I mean, men move presbyteries, different men show up. I think, you know, last year, what an Overture 15 fail in Piedmont Triad by one vote because yeah. three guys from a church got caught in a blizzard and didn't show up or something like that. That's the narrative. You know, now um, the language of this year's item, item one, is so much more precise, so much more tuned, taking into account, you know, arguments and what's really important and whatever, that something was able to be put forward that, it, you know, is getting overwhelming support. And I think that's important for us to remember in these debates. Not everything needs to pass on the first time. The sky is not always falling. We're not going to, you know, say Ichabod over the PCA if a given thing doesn't pass. Right. Sometimes right. we need to fail in order to refine and in order to stay together. And I think that chart is a even a non-math guy like me can see that chart and see what it looks like. That's great visually. And I think it's a result of some folks changing their minds because of the debate. But I think it's also a result of a better proposal being put in front of people. I think there's a third factor, too, Fred, and that is that this process that we have been through over the last four or five years has re-engaged many of our ruling elders. And so we're getting a much higher attendance at our presbytery meetings of ruling elders. They're much more aware of when uh, important votes take place because uh, our pastors are, are mobilizing them better, training them better. Uh, we're, we're spending a lot more time training our guys in the Book of Church Order, uh, we're using things like the videos that you and Dominic created uh, to equip and train our guys, and it has uh, it has 
re-energized many of our presbyteries that have been more abundant in the past. Uh, now they're, they're lively and engaged. Our committees are working well. And I think that's a huge factor that we've seen over the last four or five years. Agree. Agree. Yeah, well, well said. Um, any other uh, comments as we uh, think about these three items before the presbyteries? I know it, it seems almost certain that they will pass uh, before the spring. If there's, uh, if there's no other comments on that, we're going to get into our, our current overtures. Uh, so I don't know, uh, Mr. Moderator, if you want to step out uh, uh, for, this, for this portion. Uh, thank you for, for being here, but I don't know if you need to, if you need to uh, take off. I, I think I will, uh, both because I've got some other things to do. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, thank and you for your time and your comments. I, I want everyone to wait with bated breath for my renewed overtures document that will come out this year. You may have noted, and I heard it loud and clear over email, that I didn't send it out last year. I did not feel like I needed, I could, knowing that I was running for moderator. Um, I don't think it has the influence that Dr. Taylor seems to think that it does, that if I put something in a document, it's going to carry the day. But um, I will hold my fire for that and detailed analysis. Look forward to that as we approach General Assembly in uh, five or six months. All thank right. you, Ryan. I appreciate uh, the invitation. And oh, thanks uh, for coming. bless you all in your ministries and in your work. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you. Thank you. All right, well, let's... Uh... And Ryan, I'm going to have to jump off in about... Okay. Uh, Eight minutes as well. All right. Well, is there any overture you particularly want to talk about before you go? No. Or otherwise, we'll take them in seriatim. Yeah, let's take, the right them, word. Uh, <laughs> let's take uh, them in order. All right. So we've got this first overture, a, a, a do-overture before it even got to the uh, General Assembly uh, from, where's this from? Piedmont Triad Presbytery on uh, admitting atheists to the church courts um, uh, in the... Um, Previous version of of this uh, of this proposed amendment, uh, they they kind of cut out the oaths altogether, um, but still treated it as though it was an oath. But in this revised form, they have oaths, vows for um, a Christian. Uh, but if the person is not a Christian, then there's um, the option of just making a solemn promise. So, um, uh, what 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 are your thoughts? What's what does the panel think about this one? You know, already one of the things that we allow is uh, police reports, um, expert reports uh, to be brought uh, in, in cases. Uh, the truth is, these are church courts. And uh, so I'm just not, uh, I, I, I don't follow the argument. I mean, look at how this opens, the proposed language. If, however, the witness cannot take an oath either for, uh, what does it say, conscious sake or conscientiousness? Yeah. Like, what? I, I mean, even before we get to the whole uh, addressing atheists thing head on, I mean, this, this language leaves leaves us, I think, wide open uh, yeah. to to a lot of just loose handling of the disciplinary process, which is really the last place we want to be loose in handling something. I think Stephen was going to say something. I'm sorry, I cut you off, brother. The one thing um, about, you know, this overture that still strikes me, given the one that came um, this past assembly, um, is 
uh, sort of just the, the, the propriety of admitting unbelievers to a church court when there is still no consequence to them sort of uh, lying or and not even lying because that, that was brought up at the assembly and, you know, um, I think maybe not given it, its due as an argument against changing things. But I think the bigger risk is, you know, um, you know, in civil proceedings, if you slightly exaggerate or criminal proceedings, you slightly exaggerate something. Uh, you think something might have happened, even though it might not have happened. You speak a little bit too much uh, toward a particular position. Um, that can be sort of perjury, and uh, it, it can lead to sort of actual consequences. And I fear that you know, admitting unbelievers to church courts will, um, yeah, I, people succumb to exaggeration. I'm tempted towards exaggerating certain things. Uh, and if I were you know in a church court case and I knew that I had sworn oath to not do that. Uh, I would really restrain myself, I think, whereas I'm not sure um, an unbeliever would practically have that uh, sort of uh, reason to do so. Um, so a similar thing to what's been said at the past assembly, um, but I think it's a bit more subtle, but frankly, uh, even more dangerous because, you know, outright lies are sometimes pretty easy to tell that it's an outright lie, whereas, you know, slight exaggerations, a little fib here or there, um, those things can add up and be really detrimental. Yeah. I would add that if I appreciate anything about it, it's that there's a, they seem to, uh, to desire how to dis discern truth and reach a verdict. And that if you can, if you can do so, we need to take up means if possible to, to help discern. I think that's, that's good principally, right? If we can learn something that will help us discern uh, what needs to be done, what is truth, that's good. I don't, I don't know how that requires though admitting um, folks into the church court that are not believers uh, or are not even atheist or not theist even. Uh, and there's ways of doing that without changing these things and taking lightly vows and oaths. And so I, I, I think if there's something I would respond to, it's, is there a way that we could get to your goal, which would be, is there a way to discern truth? I mean, I also would say, does it, isn't that we need evidence that we're not actually discerning truth well. Right. That would be the first, uh, would be a question. But if that's true, then is there a way to do it without getting, bringing in things into an ecclesiastical setting that are not appropriate? Yeah, and, and I the, think Dr. Grant has pointed to the uh, the way to do that through affidavits, through police reports. Yes. Uh, we don't need atheists to be admitted to church courts uh, to, to accomplish that goal. As, exactly. As, as much as we care about justice. Uh, well, Dr. Grant, I do want to thank you for being on the on the panel. I know you've got another engagement to to head to. So, if, if well, thank you, out, thank and you. God bless you. Appreciate all the work you're doing. <laughs> bless you, Zach. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, well, what do we so, think? I'll you know, just comment ahead. that uh, I've been dwelling a lot on Joshua chapter nine, thinking about the Gibeonite yeah. um, deception. Um, and, and how it might relate to, to this particular overture and the broader oaths issue. And I think, um, you know, at the end of the day, we have to remember that those outside the church do not share the interests of the church, even if they come in such a way and present in such a way that uh, there might be a shared interest. So the, as the Gibeonites, they'd come and make an alliance with us and we will mutually benefit. Uh, wow. But they did not have the church interests in mind. And so I think that's something that we need to keep in mind as we think about this oaths issue. Uh, the other thing that I've been thinking about is that we actually, uh, to some extent, want the church courts and the civil courts to be a little different. 
um, in, in, if we truly have an interest in protecting the uh, the abused, right? Because there are things that civil courts would not consider abuse that I think church courts would and should consider abuse by our understanding of uh, the Ten Commandments in particular. And I think the more that the church courts become like civil courts, uh, the less likely it is for someone who's truly been abused to find relief, because I think they'll be denied relief in both courts if they uh, are similar to each other and therefore arrive at similar conclusions. Yeah, I, I just wonder if this is a failure to distinguish between different categories of ecclesiastical and and civil, even the spheres. Um, and and I, I, that was where I was thinking, Ryan, yeah. that, oh, to yeah. be honest with you, if, if I read this and talk about all the things that come into play and what would be brought in, I come back and say, I am not competent to discern some of these things that would potentially be allowed. Uh, because it seems to me that this, this I, maybe I'm saying something without making a clarification point that this is a mixing, a mixing here. And the mixing you're speaking of to me comes from an assumption that often can come in some quarters of the PCA that we are competent to be in areas where we're not social mm -hmm. commentators, cultural commentators, sociologists. And now we're bringing in other factors in. It's like, no, this is a church court. That's yeah. what we're supposed to do. And when we start bringing in these other things and mixing this, we're going to find out quickly that we don't actually know a lot about this. Right. And we need to stay in our lane and keep things divided as the Lord would have us. Uh, yeah, Absolutely. Well, let's uh, let's move on to Overture Three, uh, constitutional. Um, I'm sorry, Overture Two. I I just can't count today. Um, uh, this is regarding transfer exams and what do you have to be examined in and on uh, to transfer into a presbytery. Uh, I think I'm having the stated clerk of Northern California Presbytery on the show in a few weeks, so. Um, uh, he'll he'll be talking about the the genesis of this. It seems like a, a great effort, a, a good addition and clarification to our constitution. Do y'all have any thoughts? Have you gotten able gotten a chance to review this? I like it. I think it's uh, there's a lot here to work with. Um, I get I like the intention of it. It's seen what I read of it and think it could be helpful. Uh, the one part I there's a thirteen six b. Um, that I think may potentially could be too loose, might need to be shored up, ordained ministers from other denominations being considered by presbytery. Presbyteries for reception may come under the extraordinary provisions set forth in BCO 21-4. I may be misreading it, and I'm, I'm happy to be wrong, would like to be wrong. But it seems to me that that just sort of says they can come under the extraordinary provision, and then that's the end of it. So, well, we're gonna, I would like to see maybe how that factors in better. But um, that to me is the only part that I would like to some clarity on, but overall I like where it's going. I think the clarity is introduced in item C there where it says in every case um, and then lists uh, what the presbytery should do upon receiving a man, no matter where uh, he's coming from, be it another denomination or presbytery. Um, but Joe, your point's well made. And I think that is something to, to consider and to make sure to get clarity on. As you examine the overture and as we think about it, but I think overall this is super helpful for um, uh, highlighting grassroots Presbyterianism as it's practiced in the PCA, and that is that power um, resides 
primarily in the presbytery rather than in the general assembly or the denomination. So just because a man is uh, ordained in my presbytery and accepted in my presbytery does not necessarily mean that any other presbytery in the PCA should uh, should welcome him in with open arms without any kind of scrutiny or examination. Not only do men change over time, <laughs> we are mutable creatures, uh, but also um, each presbytery is responsible and accountable to God for the ministry that takes place within its bounds. Yeah. And I think this this overture uh, helps us shore up in our BCO how we as the PCA exercise uh, our practice and recognize our accountability before God. Well, it passes muster here. We'll see how it uh, fares at the General Assembly and on the uh, through the Overtures Committee. Well, now we come to Overture 3 um, to make constitutional a portion of our uh, DPW, our Directory for the Public Worship of God. I see two thumbs up there from Teaching Elder Groff. Um, the preaching of the Word is an ordinance of God for the salvation of men. Serious attention should be paid to the manner in which it is done. The minister or qualified man... Uh, should apply himself. Uh, uh, so uh, this overture would would specify that it is a minister or some other man who is to be preaching. Uh, this seems pretty basic to me. I'm not sure why uh, Scott Edberg uh, initiated a uh, Twitter uh, firestorm. This is not Scott's fault. He's an innocent lad. Fair enough. But uh, but what um, what 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 do you see as the need of this? Well, there's history behind this. Um, Ryan, when the PCA was founded, it was our founders' every intention to have a constitutionally binding directory for public worship. And there were efforts to to bring that uh, ambition, that aspiration to fruition. And those efforts stalled for one reason or another. And, and I think that we might be seeing some historical studies of that coming out soon, oh. really in response to the furor over uh, teaching Elder Edberg's tweet. Um, but what what one interesting approach to this was to rewrite the whole DPW and yeah. to pass it as constitutional in the 80s. And um, that just ran into insurmountable difficulty. And then uh, teaching elder David Coffin, who is still a very active and present force to be reckoned with in the General Assembly and in our denomination, uh, proposed taking three chapters at a time. But even that was a bit too much to handle. And so now we're, we're doing one chapter like, at a time. Even and, that was a bit too much to handle in the 80s after the RPCS came into the PCA. And, and so then, I, think, uh, I think this approach might actually be helpful of considering one chapter at a time. Well, in 2018, and, we considered one sentence at a time. Yeah, well, that might have been a, a bit too tedious, and we are not the tedious Presbyterians. That that acclaim belongs to one of our sister denominations. But um, I think one chapter at a time is a good PCA pace for taking a look at the directory for public worship and seeking to shore up not a uniformity of practice, but a more true unity of how we worship our risen Savior uh, in the PCA. Yeah, let's let's look at some of the, the comments it was getting on, on social media. <laughs> it um, reeks of GRN. <laughs> to his credit, I think he actually apologized for saying that. Yeah. I, I don't know. People people send me screenshots all week, uh, all day. All, you know, I, I, I can't. A day doesn't go by where I don't get a screenshot from somebody. Not me, Ron, because I don't have Twitter. The <laughs> wisest man in the room. Um, 
I'm not sure I want to be in a domination that can't do strip subscription, so instead does strict polity. Uh, it's not what we were founded uh, to be. My tweet is about a much larger trend that touches on the past three GAs, RPR references, attacks on my church and presbytery, and the overtures currently booked for 2024. It's deeply uh, concerning. Uh, yep, uh, the trend toward unhealthy emphasis on uniformity, uh, one uh, that is out of line with our denomination's founding and tenor. Um, I, I just don't understand uh, what's, what's going on here. What, what is the hostility to this sort of clarity? If there was a trend toward uniformity, we wouldn't be talking about a directory for public worship. We'd be talking about a book of common prayer. Book of common and prayer. so I think that there is a fundamental misunderstanding of what it is uh, that is being proposed. We're not saying everybody needs to order their worship in exactly the same way. We're saying that there are certain elements that must be included in worship for it to be considered worship, namely a call to worship, a benediction, a reading of scripture, uh, prayer, preaching, singing of songs, hymns and spiritual songs, uh, the right administration of the sacraments, uh, you know, at, at appropriate times. And so this whole siren or not siren song, this whole outcry against uniformity is really misplaced. Um, I think what a directory for public worship does is ensure that we're worshiping God and, um, and, and ensure that we're not calling church something which isn't church. Um, so uh, I don't know how I could be more clear about that, but I, I, yeah. I would dismiss out of hand this particular outcry. Now, if they use a different word other than uniformity, then maybe we'd have something to talk about. No, no. What about this? Um, you know that this has a uh, making us a, a conformist denomination, uh, and then here um, hijacking the denomination, turning it into something it wasn't intended to be—a narrow pup tent denomination characterized by liturgical conformity, strict subscription. Um, you know, I, is that is that what's under under uh, underlying these efforts? I mean, these words like like uh, bringing out the word uniformity uh, to oppose this effort to consider uh, the chapter on preaching and making it constitutionally uh, obligatory or binding. I mean, all, all of this is to me a uh, rather inflammatory rhetoric and I respect these brothers. I love them dearly. Some of them are my friends that I even you know enjoy seeing and, and cooperate in ministry for, but I, I do think that the rhetoric they're employing to oppose even considering doing something that is not just historically Presbyterian, but but really a pretty basic commitment of uh, reformed worship. That is having, uh, you know, some application of the regulative principle and applying the scriptures to our worship. Uh, this outcry against that effort in such strong fever pitched rhetoric uh, and rhetorical tones is uncalled for. I mean, this mm. or not. Nobody, nobody is forcing conformity or uniformity or an undue strictness. What we're trying and seeking to do, those of us who are in favor of this, is, is simply apply God's word to our worship. Mm. And isn't that the whole point of the Reformation? Even before we start talking about uh, reforming doctrine, what do we talk about in the Reformation? The Reformation of worship. Um, in on the necessity of reforming the church, John Calvin opens and says that all of our doctrinal refinements and changes are going to be null and void if we don't address worship. Indeed, that is our aim to worship God uh, more purely, more truly, according to his word. And what comes out of that is not a prayer book. 
But right, traditionally, right. in the Presbyterian tradition, what comes out of it is a directory to help us, to direct us in the putting together of appropriate worship services week by week, year by year in our churches. Well said. Any other comments on this Overture 3? Uh, make uh, the. Yep, I, I agree with Zach. I think the tent should be as wide, with respect to worship, as wide as the Bible allows. And so if that is described as, I guess, a pup tent, which I had to look up, I guess it's a literally the, a tent designed for a pup. So, uh, <laughs> uh, But uh, I'll also state for the record that uh, I have deep appreciation for our tedious sister denominations, whichever ones you were referring to, Zach. Uh, the last thing I will say, I guess, is just I, I do find the language qualified man to be a little bit clunky. Um, you know, I think it maybe opens up some unnecessary or uh, unintended latitude about what qualifies a man. Um, I think in other places in our BCO and DPW, uh, later revisions have said ministers, after you clarify ministers, it, it would then read that man. And I think that more specifically addresses the issue at hand. I, I I agree, and I wonder if this was an intentional latitude left to the session, that if the session wants to invite the part-time youth director to fill the pulpit one Lord's Day a year, that they have that latitude, it's their judgment that he's qualified. Yes, I, I would like to see it say ordained man or licensed man, um, but I do think this this is a good start and, and does provide latitude to our, our brothers who would be more comfortable with a, with a little bit more um, leeway there. All right. Well, what about Overture 4? Um, this is from uh, Central Indiana uh, Presbytery. You know, I, I wasn't sure, um, you know, is, is, there, is there a precedent for this sort of amalgamation of a, of a House of Lords and, and a study committee uh, within the church? Uh, where, where you know every, every constitutional change is to go to a a, a committee, and they've they've done us a service in that they've already pre-selected the men they want on that committee. Um, is is this with? Is there a precedent for this? Does anybody know? I see uh, Stephen shaking his head, but our our listeners won't be able to see that. Uh, that's. <laughs> Yeah, as far as I can tell, um, I, I mean, I haven't read every set of minutes for the past 50 years. I've read a substantial fraction of the minutes, I'd say, um, but I have not seen something like this happen where you basically, I mean, the Overtures Committee hasn't existed in its current form for that long in denominations history and sort of proposing a pre-Overtures like expert committee. Um, that's this, this has not happened before. Um, it seems that the thing that, you know, Central Indiana should do, you know, if they want particular things changed in the book with respect to judicial process, they could ask all of these men to be, as it were, sort of a committee of their presbytery and advise their presbytery on what overtures their presbytery can then submit to the overtures committee, you know, get them all nice and clean and polished so that the overtures committee can consider them and make recommendations in accordance with our rules. Um, this just sort of seems like, you know, not proper <laughs> overall. It's it's not following sort of what, what the sort of, uh, as it were, sort of grassroots, I think, tendency of the PCA is, where we do have an overtures committee that is, you know, fully representative of the denomination. And of course, you know, this isn't replacing the overtures committee. But, you know, as I've read minutes from past assemblies, as I've read David Hall's book um, about the past 50 years, it tends to be the case that a like blue ribbon committee, uh, a blue ribbon committee usually gets its way um, because there's eminently trustworthy men on, on the committee, um, whereas 
you know, our denomination is designed in such a way as to sort of not allow for expertise to sort of carry the weight. Um, we're more grassroots than expertise. So I just think this is a, a fairly bad idea that's relatively unprecedented. I'd be interested to see if anyone who's agreed to be on the committee actually speaks against it, because I suspect a few of them may. Mm. That would be interesting. You know, Ryan, um, Dan Barber, who's the author of this overture, asked me if I would be interested in, uh, or if I should say the editors of Presbyterian Polity would be interested in running um, a piece defending it on Presbyterian Polity. And we have sought to be a, um, a pretty neutral platform. And we, you know, we put a caveat whenever we're having an article or hosting an article promoting a certain uh, action or, or overture. And so I said, I'd absolutely love to. Um, oh, wonderful. Thank you for wow, QR code and everything, Ryan. That's great. Um, um, so I said to Dan, I'd be, you know, we'd be happy to consider it as long as it's well written and fair. I mean, that's, I don't see any reason why we wouldn't. Um, but I, I did say to him in full disclosure, I'm not really in favor of your overture. And he said, well, how about we talk about it? And I'm looking forward to getting on the phone with Dan. He's a very gracious man. And um, I'm looking forward to, uh, to speaking with him about it. But on, on first glance, a couple things strike me. One, the selection of men that are being proposed or put forward in the overture to be on this committee um, is is bar none stellar. Yes, uh, there there are there are men on there whom I count some of my best friends in the PCA, and there are other men with whom I know I degree or I disagree on a number of matters, but regard them highly as competent, conscientious presbyters. Uh, men whom I would trust to be on an investigative committee against me in case there were allegations made against my ministry or against my conduct. So I have no problem with the men that are on there, but I am deeply uh, suspicious. Perhaps this is the PCA in my blood. I'm deeply suspicious of, of, of an overture putting for not just a recommendation of people to be considered to be put on it, but such strict uh, guidance to the general assembly of who, sh who should be on this. And, and even if, even if uh, the moderator decides there should be fewer people, uh, he should choose from this pool. It just seems a bit heavy handed. And I don't know that in the PCA, we have an appetite for that level of heavy handedness in the putting together of such a committee. But then also, why are we circumventing our process? I mean, we have the process we have for a reason. Uh, I don't think this short circuits it, but it certainly circumvents it. And I don't know that that's really the appropriate way forward either. So I need to be convinced, um, but I'm willing to be convinced. And I'm yeah. looking forward to talking to the authors of the overture about that. And maybe we'll, uh, we'll do a podcast on that article, should it appear. All right. Well, any other, any other thoughts on overture four? I don't feel competent to speak on it. Um, it's a pretty, it seems pretty detailed past my expertise, which is, you know, not much more than uh, the average person. So <laughs> I, I don't like it initially, I will say. Um, it strikes me as problematic, which, yeah. uh, but also I just don't really know if I could explain why better than what Zach just said. Yeah. Well, Overture 5 is a boundary change in uh, Piedmont Triad Presbytery, fairly, um, Routine that happens you know, almost every year, something like that. Uh, and then Overture 6, background checks, we've gone round and round on those for the last uh, several, at least, well, the last several months at least. Overture 7, though, does uh, 
Well, that certainly uh, brings new things. Uh, Stephen, you're, you're familiar with this overture from Ascension Presbytery, one of the great presbyteries of the Presbyterian Church in America. Uh, would, you, would you like to explain uh, what this overture seeks to do? Uh, Zach, then maybe you can tell us the history of this overture. Yeah, sure. I'm uh, happy to, to do my best to attempt to explain. Uh, I'm not in Ascension. Uh, I've never been in Ascension. Uh, I think I've driven through Ascension maybe once or twice in my life. So uh, I only I just know a few men in Ascension, and I messaged one of them the other day because I saw this posted on the on the GA website and was just you know frankly just delighted to see it there, and also suspected I knew who wrote most of it and was correct um, as to who which esteemed presbyter ruling elder. Uh, Vote, wrote wrote much of this overture, but in a sense, uh, this I mean, and the the the, the preambulatory statements, the whereas statements um, that precede the actual action that the overture proposes are very helpful in explaining what the situation is. Last year at the assembly, um, specifically on the overtures committee, uh, there was a bit of an issue regarding uh, an item of business, uh, a particular overture, the overture that was to uh, change the RAO to make it such that uh, every permanent committee and agency would have to report all substantive policy changes to their committee of commissioners for a review. Um, initially, the stated clerk did not uh, send that overture to the overtures committee and rather sent it to all of the permanent committees and agencies. And so a particular teaching elder at the very beginning of the committee meeting uh, asked that we consider it because it is properly before the overtures committee. So debate ensued with the stated clerk getting up there and um, stating his case and men from the floor stating their case. And so there's just great confusion over the matter. Our rules are somewhat unclear on which overtures should go to the overtures committee and only the overtures committee or rather should go to the overtures committee and um, you know not to some other committee not to the permanent committees or agencies um, the again the preambulatory statements note that uh, in 11 or chapter 11 or I guess article 11 of the RAO uh, it sort of says two things that suggest different things uh, the first is that all overtures um, proposing amendments to the RAO need to be sent to the CCB, Committee on Constitutional Business, for advice to the Overtures Committee. So, well, if they're advising the Overtures Committee on the Overture, presumably the Overtures Committee gets to make a recommendation on the Overture. Um, later on, though, in the paragraph, it talks about how the stated clerk uh, is to forward all Overtures proposing changes to the BCO to the Overtures Committee and doesn't mention the RAO. So there was some understandable confusion on that um, on that point. And so this overture uh, rewrites the entire uh, paragraph of the RAO in an attempt to spell out much more clearly how the stated clerk should direct overtures that he receives from the presbytery for consideration at the assembly. Which overtures go to the overtures committee? Uh, which overtures go to permanent committees and agencies for consideration by them? And then recommendation through their committee of commissioners. And so just overall, I think the, I mean, just brief opinion of the overture you can sort of tell that i probably like it already uh, it's very clear it's very systematic there's a logic to it it works through how the overtures uh, how to sort of uh, yeah, just, it works through which overtures get sent where um and with i think a little bit of um polishing here and there uh this should um hopefully sail through the assembly because it really just um, makes much clearer and much more helpful uh, a part of our uh, rules to make the assembly function more more cleanly without controversy uh, and more efficiently. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Zach, do you uh, recall which teaching elder it was who requested uh, Overture 7 from 23 
Uh, any other historical uh, background that you'd care to share? I think you wrote an article about this while you were at General Assembly, didn't you? Yeah. Um, I, re I wasn't on Overture's committee. I wasn't on any committees of commissioners. I was a floor <laughs> clerk, um, which I really enjoyed doing for two years, but I don't think I'm going to do anymore. But um, I I was staying with a bunch of guys who were on Overture's committee um, and in an Airbnb. And so when I got back uh, that night, they were all talking about this. And and so as I dug into it, I, I, I just found it fascinating. So it was actually on June 13th, which is during General Assembly week, uh, after writing a, um, a blog post about kind of the information I was gathering and, and my own thinking as a as just another presbyter, as another commissioner in the assembly hall and running it by a couple of guys to make sure I got my details straight. Um, uh, yeah, we published it on Presbyterian Polity or PCAPolity.com. Um, but basically, it, it has to do with action and accountability, how things are done and handled at GA. Last year, um, there was an RAO change proposed that came um, before all of the committees of commissioners. So the stated clerk routed them to everybody. And that meant a lot of work for him running around to explain his rationale for that and and defending his position. And then it ended up that the overtures committee took it up as a matter of business. And, it, and then it passed the assembly and RAO changes go into effect immediately upon passage by the assembly. They don't have a ratification process like uh, like other uh, constitution um, constitutional amendments. And so I think that this will um, this overture that we have before us, which I believe was written by ruling elder Jane Iker of Ascension Presbytery. You're, you're correct. <laughs> um, it, it is, it's actually, and, and only those who are completely ensconced and enthralled with Presbyterian polity as it expresses itself in the PCA and, and the men who generally, uh, who kind of apply it, but only those of us in that very small category of human beings um, would appreciate this comment. But this overture is like the overture embodiment of Jane Eikirk. What do I mean by that? <laughs> Ruling Elder Nykirk, Dr. Nykirk, is one of these guys, much like uh, Pastor Greco, um, who just wants to help everybody. And doesn't matter where you're coming from, he wants to help you. Jared Nelson told me a story about one time Jared brought a motion to the floor um, of Ascension Presbytery, and Dr. Nykirk was not in favor of it, but Dr. Nykirk rose and proposed an amendment that would make it stronger, even though he would still oppose it. Because his whole perspective on being a churchman is exactly that which each and every one of us should emulate. That is be helpful to everyone. We want the strongest arguments to uh, be duking it out uh, in deliberation so that we come up with the best results. And so what I like about this overture is it really does seek to help all of us, no matter where we're coming from, in our process of considering proposed changes to our book of order. Uh, to our constitution as a whole, even to our rules of assembly operation, and basically how we do things as a PCA. Um, and this is not coming out of nowhere. It is building upon what was done last year. And for more details on that, I refer you to the Presbyterian Polity blog or to the minutes of the 50th General Assembly of the PCA once they come out. And I'll try to post those uh, a link to that. Um, any other thoughts on this? A, a well-done overture from uh, Ruling Elder Nykirk, I think, and we'll certainly save the stated clerk from having to do as much running around next year. 
just just one more just one brief comment on it um or one further brief comment which uh is that i really think this this overture um is is moving in this in the same direction that the assembly has been moving over the past uh, couple of years which is um just uh greater accountability uh at the assembly level and greater uh sort of grassroots involvement in in the assembly um you know we had the uh ruf issue that came before the assembly this year the several rpr issues um where there were 40-5 citations against two presbyteries um there was uh some issues or some an attempt to file a minority report and vote on it two assemblies ago uh to sort of try and basically say the sjc aired and the assembly wants to uh, quote unquote, hold accountable the SJC. And the year prior to that, there was the admission to the world issue where uh, the permanent committee's recommendation uh, was was not uh, passed by the assembly. Um, and so this overture really does ensure that the overtures committee is the sort of premier body in the assembly that receives overtures and therefore can deliberate on them, uh, submit minority reports to the assembly where, you know, the permanent committees, committees of commissioners can't submit minority reports. So this is just probably the, the best way to sort of continue in that trajectory of ensuring that, you know, all voices can be heard, that all corners of the PCA are able to have their uh, have their opinions heard on the floor, um, be able to make motions, come to the floor, vote upon uh, those sorts of things. Um, also, I think, Ryan, you asked who uh, claimed this for overtures committee. I think it was teaching elder David Barry. David um, Barry. I think it was, yeah, David Barry. Uh, he got up there and I did not expect him to do what he did and behold, and it, it confused everyone and <laughs> made the overtures committee take even longer than, than it tends to do. Um, well, well done brother Barry. Uh, <laughs> one of my, uh, claims to fame is that I, I was his roommate in, in seminary. So uh, famous friends. That's right. I have a famous friend. Yes. Well, great. Any other inner comments on these first seven overtures? All right. Well, um, there there was a, a call for uh, synods uh, by uh, Sean Michael Lucas. Uh, do you think we'll see an overture of trying to create a synod uh, system? What, what do you think that might look like in the PCA? Well, I agree. That's a deep subject. I agree with Dr. Lucas. I think, uh, maybe not quite as emphatically, that we desperately need synods. But I do think that at our current size, if you were to transport us today to the old school Presbyterian church of the 19th century, you would find, oh, look, they have synods. And we would have synods. So I, I think it could be very helpful to us. One way that this could be helpful is in this whole matter of appealing to third-party investigatory firms to do the work of the church on the part of the church. Um, a brother, good brother asked me what I thought about that proposal. It's one of the recommendations of the DASA committee report. And I said, you know, our presbyteries should be robust enough to be able to perform investigations that would be more thorough, more pastorally sensitive, more theologically grounded, uh, more biblically based, than uh, than any parachurch organization would be able to do even for three hundred thousand uh, dollars, which you know sometimes the bills accrue to that level during the, the during these processes. But there are some presbyteries, and I can name a few that have so few churches, so few active elders involved that um, that they can't really function uh, in those ways, and they can't perhaps. Uh, perform an adequate uh, review of records or an adequate investigation. 
uh, into allegations of abuse, you know, for example, or something else. And so what do we do? Well, it, it would be inappropriate to ask a neighboring presbytery that's stronger or more robust to step in and to do that work. It, it, there's no real constitutional way or even I can't even conceive of one where that would make sense without introducing a whole host of problems. But the introduction of, uh, of a level of synods could actually help to uh, provide a mechanism that's legitimate and historically grounded to perform that level of scrutiny over uh, what's going on in presbyteries and local churches. Also, I think that uh, there are a number of movements in the PCA right now on positively speaking, so a bit of a Debbie Downer subject talking about investigations, but more constructively, when we look at M&A disaster relief, when we look at M&A church planting efforts that uh, that cross presbytery lines, uh, we have a number of uh, interesting phenomena in the PCA. You have the edge city uh, phenomena out of, um, I think, the 16th or 25th General Assembly, which basically says if um, if you have a multiplication division of a presbytery that kind of cuts through a metro area, you should be very intentional about having cooperative church planting efforts around that edge, which would be within the city, the edge city concept. And then also we have regional church planting networks. And uh, we're even putting one together in the Carolinas. And it's something that I'm, I'm really pleased to be a part of as being on the M&A Committee of Calvary Presbytery in upstate South Carolina. And so um, these kinds of efforts constructively could be appropriately housed and coordinated at a synodical level in a way that um, at the presbytery level, we're kind of having to build something new or apart from yeah. also disaster relief. We have a coordinator in the Carolinas, uh, Steve Jessen, a great man who is a teaching elder um, who has stepped into a role uh, being called by MNA to coordinate uh, disaster relief efforts in the Carolinas. And Calvary Presbytery is pleased to be supporting him, as are a number of the other presbyteries in North and South Carolina. If we had a synod, Steve would be operating at the synodical level under synodical oversight. And so on one hand, I'm not a big fan of added bureaucracy, but on the other hand, I think it's wise to recognize that once we hit a certain scale, it does make sense to start the conversation. I don't know where we go from here, what it would look like, what even the overtures to propose such a thing would be. Uh, it would be a watershed moment in the PCA and preserving our grassroots um, distinction. Um, I, I mean, it's, I don't think it'd be hard, but it would certainly be complex. And um, it'd be interesting to see where this conversation that uh, um, teaching elder Lucas, Dr. Lucas has, has ignited, has sparked where this conversation will take us. Uh, I commend him for his boldness and courage in proposing that we have a desperate need for synods. I would suggest that if that, that an overture to develop a synod would be, at least my immediate thought is that seems like the worst way to approach it right away because immediately you have to vote You've got to present a case, uh, I would think, that not even a study committee. There ought to be like a, some sort of discussion. I don't know how you would do it. I'm not suggesting I would know how, but... Like a Discord? Okay. <laughs> yeah, an online Discord. <laughs> you know, like something to where you could you could say, look, we think this is how, this is a good thing. It's a needed thing. It could be a good thing, and here's how. We just want to present it. Almost like, you know, we do breakout sessions and such at GA or, or the seminars, why not have someone present a seminar on what might a synod look like hmm. and do it a whole general assembly wide? Because I'm 
I don't, I don't want to vote on this. So, you know, this is, I'm someone who's not given this a lot of thought, only a little bit. But if you ask me to come in and vote on should we have synods by an overture, I'm going to vote no right away because I'm not going to agree to change the structure of the, the nomination without heavy amount of participation and research uh, and thought and prayer. So I would say maybe if there is an overture to propose that we give some time to it, because Zach in this you know couple of minutes there, that was a compelling case of how this could work. And I, okay, I'm listening, but I, you know, we need to, I think I would probably reflect a lot of people like I want to know about this rather than have to know about it just to be able to cast a vote on it. Sure. Well, maybe Zach, you, you can know, get, um, uh, teaching on Lucas to write for the polity blog there. <laughs> oh, I, I would, I would love it. I mean, I, I, as Job was talking, yeah. the first thing I thought was, we need an historical examination and introduction to um, a what maybe four level Presbyterianism session, Presbytery Synod Assembly. Yeah, what is that? You know, what has that looked like in the past, particularly in America, where our geographical element is so much larger than uh, in other countries where Presbyterianism has been tried, and then also. Um, I think that I basically my, my argument for synods, and I didn't even think about it that way, Joe, but I guess you're right. I was making an, a case for synods. Um, my argument for that was basically just looking at what we're already doing and starting to do as a denomination and recognizing, oh, we're already operating, uh, into the synodical space. Um, we're not calling it that we're, but this is something we're doing already, so shouldn't we just live into the reality, so to speak? And even MTW has introduced regional hubs in the PCA for the purposes of advancing the mission of MTW, recruiting missionaries toward that 1% goal of calling a 1% of the entire denomination into foreign missions. We've got a Southwest hub, a Southeast hub, a Northeast hub. I mean, that's a very synodical thing to do as well. And if we were to create synods, it wouldn't be we would create one synod. We would actually probably have at least, I would say, four or five synods. Um, and, and you know, probably along the lines of the MTW regional hubs of Southeast, Southwest, um, Northeast, Canada. I, don't, I mean, Pacific Northwest has its own presbytery right now. But um, it would be interesting to see where this would go. And I do think that some sustained study is appropriate before we begin framing overtures toward that end. Yeah. Um, namely, sustained study to introduce the concept yeah. uh, to those of us who don't know what it is or what it would look like. And uh, even without promoting the concept, just saying, hey, this is what it would be. Do we want this? Uh, are we already doing it? Do we need this? Mm-hmm. These are good questions. Yeah. Again, I, I so appreciate, and, and it's appropriate, it comes from one of one of the foremost historians of the PCA, Sean Lucas, who's written um, a, a, an illuminating study on the founding of the denomination uh, for a continuing church, which is right up there, uh, right, right up there with Frank Smith's uh, study on the founding of the PCA and Morton Smith's How the Gold is Conducted become dim or grown dim uh, study of PCUS actions leading to the PCA. Um, so I, I appreciate that a historian of all people yeah. is saying we mm-hmm. desperately need synods because an historian knows what existed in history. And, and, and that's kind of where synods have been living yeah. mm-hmm. for the last few decades in conservative Presbyterianism, living in the past, uh, should they live again in the future or in the <laughs> present. 
that question remains to be seen. Yeah, I think this would this would help a number of of issues, and and also for judicial review. Uh, you know, there have been cases that you know guys have been convicted on the session level, that conviction has been sustained on the presbytery level, and then SJC, you know, just unanimously overturns convictions, and that might. Right now, it takes a year, eighteen months to get things. You know, from session to SJC, this could this could maybe half that time and allow uh, guys to receive uh, justice and vindication or um, mm-hmm. uh, justice and censure a lot a lot more swiftly, which which we certainly would want to encourage. Um, well, we are coming up on an hour and a half here. Uh, we're about halfway through uh, the topics uh, we thought to discuss. Um, we're just getting started, just getting Ryan. Just getting started, yeah. Um, you know, there there have been a number of, of churches uh, that have left uh, or are in the process of leaving uh, the PCA. Uh, one that we reported on uh, had announced uh, earlier, uh, Koinonia in Nashville is indeed moving to the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Uh, I won't replay the video where they made that uh, announcement of a discernment season, uh, but you can uh, go back and listen to one of the special reports in the Westminster Standard uh, to uh, review that. Also, Crossbridge PCA, a network of churches in South Florida, also leaving the PCA, and both of these over a a disagreement with the PCA's historic position on uh, the roles of men and women. Uh, But uh, St. Andrew's Chapel, uh, that is, from Sanford, Florida, uh, founded by R.C. Sproul, is now entering uh, the PCA. So uh, that's uh, we're, we're glad to be um, having them as part of part of uh, Central Florida Presbytery and the PCA. Also, uh, Roland Barnes has uh, retired. The legendary teaching elder Roland Barnes and Jim McCarthy has uh, gone uh, as his success for, successor uh, to Trinity Statesboro. Any other pastoral transitions that y'all know about that are uh, noteworthy? You know, I, I want to point out we are at a turning point in the Presbyterian Church in America. Ryan and I had the had the privilege of sitting down with Stated Clerk Chapel on Monday. And then we hung out with Job afterwards, which was great. Um, and one of the things that we talked about with uh, with Dr. Chapel is uh, the fact that there are a number of flagship congregations of the PCA that are currently without a pastor. Christ Church or Christ Pres Nashville, uh, Covenant St. Louis, which I believe is about to announce if they haven't already um, their uh, their change. And then uh, Briarwood. First Pres Hattiesburg, 10th Presbyterian Church, Philadelphia. Um, the circumstances surrounding all these, not the point of why I'm bringing this up. The point I'm saying is we are at a generational turning point. As the boomers retire or pass away, um, the question is who is going to step up into those positions of leadership? You know, Fred earlier mentioned that Harry was so good at developing leaders. Tim Keller is so good at developing leaders. These things are true. And uh, are are the current veteran churchmen and pastors in our denomination doing the same? Um, I've had the privilege of a front row seat watching how Dr. Joseph Piper, um, through a seminary, was developing leaders and, um, and encouraging them as they move into ministry and now get to a little bit further away now, but um, still very close, get to see how Jonathan Masters is doing that and how he invests in the men there and how the other faculty do so. And and surely each of us in our seminary experiences can uh, see good models of that. But um, those of us who are operating outside of seminary uh, environments need to be giving thought to this as well. 
uh, how are we developing leaders? How are we seeking mentorship as young men? I talked about that in a uh, podcast episode with Chris Vogel for MA on the revitalization of Antioch Presbyterian Church, how mentorship is such a big deal and discipleship. So uh, it is a, it, when you talk about pastoral transitions and changes, Ryan, um, you're touching on probably the biggest uh, coming change yeah. in the life of the PCA in the next decade. There, there is a changing um, of the guard happening absolutely. Right, right now. And praise God that uh, he's raising up new leaders. Um, I, I think uh, one of our founding fathers on a previous episode of this, of this program was talking about how the, the young leaders, the young men, were going to the mics at this last General Assembly and making biblical uh, arguments, coherent theological arguments, and that was exciting uh, to both of those founding fathers. Um, yeah. Dr. Piper was particularly impressed with you and with Stephen O'Neill. And with Zach Bird. Oh, Zach Bird, uh, the man of the hour. And Jacob Gerber. <laughs> Zach Bird was great. I mean, he was preaching. Oh. It was wonderful. Yes. So, uh, I mean, yeah, it's 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 a remarkable time to be in the PCA as a young guy. Yeah. And uh, not to make a name for yourself, but to make much of the name of Jesus. Amen. That is our aim. Well, for what it's worth, it's not the big churches. It's, um, what'd you call them? Flagship churches? I can't yeah, I mean, that that's not my language. No, I'm I, adopting that from someone well, else. Well, yeah. whatever you're that concept i know what you mean yeah. but it's also happening in smaller churches you're right I mean, I, i'm pastoring a church where the senior pastor retired yeah um yep. that's that happens a lot uh where men are retiring and, and uh when the in the church you know when a domination's 50 you know its founders are and then even the ones that came shortly after them are at that age that the lord would have them to to turn over the reins um and it's just going to keep happening. So it's all the more need uh, we have to, to see the young guys step up uh, and to yep. see them take over the roles and to support seminaries that train them as well and help. And for our own sake to, to be ready, we're, we're blessed in our congregation to have uh, three men contemplating the call to pastoral ministry. That's awesome. It's great. Um, one of them is not young, uh, mid forties, but, uh, Two are young, and so it's really great uh, to see. But, you know, that's a big question for me. Okay, uh, how do I actually help these guys, <laughs> you know, uh, without just saying, go to Greenville and be done, um, <laughs> you know, which is a decent enough answer, but not a complete answer. But I think it's just something for all to be considered and leading uh, those churches through that change because people, the, the people of the church are very um, sensitive to pastoral changes, especially a retirement. Yeah. Because he's not leaving because he doesn't want to be with them per se, uh, or to go somewhere else. He just knows the Lord's called his time to him. That's hard for people, but we've had a blessed yeah. transition. Um, and uh, anyway, I'll stop there. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I think we should bring it into a close. And as I as I like to close with this uh, this question, uh, the two of you have already answered this on previous episodes. But Stephen, this is your first time on the Westminster Standard Podcast. So, what do you what, what excites you about the PCA? What are you hoping for for the PCA? What what concerns do you have for the PCA uh, going forward? I should have known that you asked this because I, I listened to the podcast and I've heard people answer that question. Well, thanks um, for what? listening. <laughs> yeah, I know. I listen. I listen to. Yeah, you you and Presbycast, you know, you're the you're the ones that tend to top my my PCA podcast list. And you and my mother reason. are the people who listen to this program. So. <laughs> I thought this They're was a podcast gay. for the listeners. 
<laughs> we were all here. That's right. <laughs> that, that's, that, that suggests that Fred Greco listens to roughly 30 minutes of the podcast. So that is a, that is a win on your part. Um, that, that does count as a, as a listen on Spotify. So it does. Um, what, what excites me at the PCA? Um, at our church in New Jersey, um, we just have a, a lot of young families with young children, um, ladies who are expecting children in 2024. Um, so just the, the prospect of, of sheep being called into the sheepfold, um, whether it be through uh, members, uh, sort of new, new, new people coming from other churches, people um, being brought to church for the first time, people having kids and raising them in, in the Lord. Um, that's really exciting for me, I think. Um, I have young kids too, and um, I'm excited for their, you know, uh, being present in worship and trying to be quiet, but failing oftentimes and, and, and doing other things. So just the life, the life of the church. Um, I know this is the case at other churches in our presbytery, um, friends in other parts of the country, other presbyteries, I hear similar stories. So I'm excited about like, just the, the, the future of the people in the churches, the members of the PCA. Cause I mean, we, yeah, we, we give Christ, we proclaim Christ to them um, where uh, yeah. Uh, you know, do, doing it for them in large part, not for ourselves. Um, so they might um, yeah, hear the voice of the good shepherd um, through us. Uh, so that excites me. Um, you said what worries me, what concerns me. Was that the other one? Uh, worries, concerns. I'm a, uh, I went to a very, very liberal seminary, uh, as some of you know, um, very bad seminary. Um, it has the longest history of conservative Presbyterianism in the United States, but that history ended roughly in the 1920s. So uh, you can do the math and figure out where I went if you so desire. Um, so I have a very sensitive, I think, antenna to uh, like things going awry. Uh, every slope is slippery to me. Um, and so I'm always concerned about all things. <laughs> you know, I love serving on, um, you know, review of records and, you know, things come up and they concern me. Um, but then, you know, people talk me off of the edge because, you know, uh, and I'm, I'm reminded of what, um, you know, our moderator um, teaching Alder Greco said earlier, which is that, you know, in the PCA, we're not, you know, debating the things that were being debated in the 20s during Machen's day uh, and in the formation of the OPC. Um, the, the, the things that we're worrying about are much more subtle. Things we're debating are much more subtle. Um, so, yeah, I do have concerns, you know, concerns about, you know, how, um, say, the overture about worship is going to be handled. Uh, concerns about, um, in particular concern I, I tend to have is, you know, concerns about grassroots. Um, you know, how will uh, the Ascension Overture be handled that, that suggests that the Overtures Committee should perhaps have much clearer and, and more robust participation in the Assembly. I'm concerned about those things, concerned about how the Assembly is going to handle things if more 40-5 citations come up through your presbytery records. Is that going to become normal, expected? Is there going to be pushback against that? Um, I, so my concerns aren't, I guess, substantive points. Uh, there's this thing or that thing, uh, that I see out there in the church that's bothering me. It's more, <laughs> I don't know the future. Yeah. Um, and so I really should probably let the worries of tomorrow be concerns of tomorrow. Uh, but mm. you know, my heart is still not fully sanctified. Um, mm. and so, uh, not so, so concerns everywhere, but nothing particularly, uh, strong other than perhaps, you know, staying in the course of grassroots confessional Presbyterianism, vanilla well stuff. Said. Well said. Yeah, vanilla Presbyterianism. Yes. <laughs> Amen. That was a well, high note uh, to end on. Ryan, you talk about churches leaving. You mentioned two. But th we have churches coming in. And you mentioned yes. St. Andrews. But there's a church even in Stephen's neck of the woods that recently voted to leave the PCUSA 
And when they had set before them and their congregation, EPC with lady officers or PCA without lady officers, they chose PCA. Wow. And and that. it looks like the conversations with the Presbytery are going well, with the PCUSA Presbytery are going well for them to be oh. able to leave with their property. Of course, there's a buyout attached to that and everything. But um, I mean, we're, we're going to get more churches like that that desire a biblical Presbyterianism yeah. without um, without craziness. And yeah. so <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing more of that in the years to come. I, I grieve when our brothers depart from us um, into more egalitarian pastures. But at the same time, man, I celebrate when I hear news of independent churches or churches and other denominations coming into the PCA, churches that will strengthen us and yeah. that align with us in our commitment to the sufficiency of scripture uh, for the church. And uh, there was a church in my own presbytery recently joined from another denomination uh, that I, I got to participate in that installation. It was thrilling. And and I know Stephen's keeping a close watch on uh, on the thing, the happenings in Jersey, in Joyzy, you know, in the church. Yes, yes. Where people sound like that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Uh, to, 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 to all of the listeners, so I guess to myself and your mother, Ryan, uh, do pray for the New Jersey Presbytery and this church um, that is that is seeking to yeah be be truer to to to, to the faith once delivered. Um, it'd be wonderful for them to 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 join with us. I think. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you all for joining, and especially those of you who made it to the end. Uh, what a what a privilege it was to have uh, this conversation. Thank you for joining the conversation on the Westminster Standard, which is the podcast of Jude 3. For additional resources or to make a donation, visit our website, jude3pca.org. It is indeed a great time to be in the Presbyterian Church in America. We had a lot of fun reflecting on God's goodness to us this year and are mightily encouraged by ongoing developments in the PCA. Do come back next week as I'm joined by Pastors Aldo Leon, Andrew Smythe, and George Sayor for a discussion regarding the Second Commandment and an error that is increasingly embraced by PCA pastors, contrary to the Westminster Standards. I'll talk to you then.